I learned about the failed war from the soldiers yeah. and from the contractors. and They're the ones. And maybe in front of the curtain, they would have to say one thing, but you'd be walking down a hallway and they'd be saying, do you know about this? Have you looked at that website? Yeah. They, they also understand. They got to stay in their lane. They yep. got to do their job. And they did do their job. I mean, I, I can tell you, when I went back for to do the research for Hopeless But Optimistic, one of the questions I had was, it was, it was obvious that everybody sort of knew it was a failed enterprise. And I wanted to understand how did groups of humans, as in our soldiers, how did they operate? Did they have that same level of courage and honor? Mm-hmm. You know, really live, very vital. They're, they're not ephemera. Yeah. These are very real things when you're, you're in that situation. You bond up pretty tight with people. And I wanted to see, did they keep it together? And I can report, yes, they did. Hmm. It was a failed war, but they continued to operate in the way that I had seen them do it before. You know, the things you, you witness and experience in war are so trying to the psych. Uh, and one way to get through it is to believe you have the moral high ground as a soldier and as an army. But if you don't believe that, it makes it that much harder. What do you think about that idea? Well, I, I saw a lot of soldiers that got extremely disillusioned. And, and we have to understand that now it's a volunteer army. Less than 1% of the U.S. population serves in the armed forces. And since 9-11, we have asked that small subset of Americans to serve multiple rotations. I I met one guy who had had 13 rotations, five rotations is not that uncommon, and multiple brain traumas. I mean, there there are... I I talked to one combat um, trauma expert, essentially a combat counselor, Hmm. and she was having to devise protocols for soldiers that had so many brain traumas, the number is now failing. Let's say a dozen, dozen concussions, dozen, you know, IEDs going off, you know, MRAPs rolling over and banging your head, that kind of stuff. And to where they had no short-term memory. So visualize being on patrol with a soldier who has no short-term memory. That puts the onus on everybody else around him to sort of cover for him in a way. Yeah, I, the w- we talked a little bit about the money, $44 billion, yeah, a trillion dollars. But the, the other thing that we don't really cope with is the incredible human tragedy of this ongoing war, this endless war. There, just last year... There were tens of thousands of Afghan casualties, combatants and civilians, including almost a 1,000 children killed, including well over 2,500 children wounded. This is out of a a population of 25, 30 million people. Right. In terms of our soldiers, from these two post-9-11 wars, there are 1,600 amputees. There are 700,000 vets that are 30% or more disabled. 
327,000 vets with traumatic brain injuries. PTSD is absolutely rampant. The VA is overwhelmed with post-9-11 injuries and, and wounds, and we're not even really talking about the psychic wounds. That I, I know soldiers that are just, everybody knows soldiers that are just struggling. Families. Right. Yeah, I just, the, the price of this is pretty hard, and most of that burden is falling on our military families. They're the ones having to care for these people. Doug, how does this make you feel about your country? It makes me feel like my country needs to make Congress do the right thing. A congressman, uh, he, uh, I sat in his office once and he said, you know, as the lobbyists came in and out of the office, and he said, well, sometimes Congress has to be shamed into doing the right thing. And this has become the forgotten war. We don't want to think about it. We're going to think about ISIS or we're going to think about some new boogeyman. In the meantime, this thing goes on. And the generals are showing up now saying, oh, we just need a few thousand more soldiers without explaining how a few thousand more soldiers is going to change things when a hundred thousand didn't. Right. And, you know, are we going to go for it? Are we going to reescalate? That's certainly what the beneficiaries of the war want. The military wants it. God knows the military-industrial complex wants it. Congress wants it because who pays to get them elected? And um, we're just throwing good money after bad. There, there's a great – when I get it, there, the book says hopeless but optimistic, and people are saying, what's the optimistic part? I was just about to do that. And I don't know if this exactly answers it, but my level of – Cautious optimism has to do with that great business phrase, sunk cost bias. You know, where it, good business people know you don't throw good money after bad. Right. And so the, the, the beneficiaries of the war are throwing out this term. Well, we've already invested so much blood and treasure. Donald Trump's a businessman. He's gone bankrupt four times. Yep. He knows when to throw in the towel. Yep. Will he do that? I don't know. You know, are we going to reescalate or, you know, the other phrase that people are using is uh, the, the beneficiaries are saying it's a stalemate. Yeah. This isn't a stalemate. It's a failed war. And how do you get out of it? That is the question. Because the uh, consideration is you need to exit a situation like that with honor. You remember the old line from Vietnam. Peace with honor. But there was no honor after that. I think, as we all recall, the communists and the North Korean, North Vietnamese did win. And not only that, one of the most famous pictures of the second half of the 20th century was the helicopter on top of the embassy with all the people trying to get on board. Let's get out of here. Well, you understand that I've spent a lot of time in the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, mm -hmm. which is a a giant compound and i am now seeing articles where they're trying to figure out do they have enough helicopter pads does this happen today does this happen tomorrow i mean can now we're we're sort of trying to define victory as Kabul hasn't fallen you know we can maintain a semblance of a proxy government there which is 
again, among the most corrupt on the planet. Right. Uh, which is generally considered to be feckless, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a, the, with elections that are at best a farce, which we pay for, by the way, <laughs> 300 million bucks per election, I think, something, some crazy amount of money. I have two, uh, they're sham elections. They bear no resemblance to elections as we know them. Right. And the Afghans say, well, the Westerners want this, and then they give us the aid money, so what do we care? We'll do this. <laughs> we'll humor them. Yeah. What next? Do you go back to Afghanistan at all Don't in know. the near future? I never know. Do you want to? At some point, I certainly do. The, the Afghans are extraordinary people. I have the highest regard for them. And I see them as very resilient. I see them as very courageous. There are There are a lot of chapters in Hopeless But Optimistic that – Talk about their their love of beauty, their love of poetry, um, the way they see the world, uh, and the great historical culture that it is, it, it, with really strong cultural bonds and a love of religion and love of family. They're they're quite extraordinary people. 